Good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, very, very warm welcome to this, um, which is the first uh, in this year's Perspectives on Europe series, which the LSE European Institute um, uh, with APCO Worldwide um, uh, organise every year. And this event is also, we'd like to say, in partnership with Business uh, for a New Europe um, uh, organisation. Um, as always, and those of you who hopefully will be coming to lots of events during the year, the series will be bringing you uh, decision makers, opinion formers from uh, the very highest level uh, across uh, Europe. So do please keep a watch on the LSE uh, website, European Institute website in particular, uh, not least as some of the events we'll be having, uh, particularly with senior politicians, tend to be organised at very short notice. Now. Um, I'm delighted to welcome, and the reason you're all here today, um, Commissioner Lewandowski, Janusz Lewandowski, the EU Commissioner for Financial uh, Programming and the Budget. Uh, he's handled this portfolio since uh, last uh, February. Before that, for several years, he was a member of the European Parliament, uh, where he held various committee chairmanships and vice chairmanships, including, most appropriately, the chairmanship of the, uh, of the EP's Budget Committee. So, sort of an interesting example, perhaps, of a poacher turned gamekeeper, uh, as, we, as we say in English. Um, Janusz Lewandowski has also been a member of the Polish Parliament, where he was uh, deputy chair of the European Integration Committee from 19, uh, and from 1991 um, to 1993 uh, he was Minister for uh, Privatisation. Uh, he has a PhD from the University of Gdansk, uh, where he has also been a founder of and also chairs uh, the trustees of the Gdansk Institute of Market Economics. Uh, he's lectured at Harvard University. He's been a regular contributor to the Polish and international uh, news media and is also the author of a book on, uh, on famous liberals. So when you put all this together with his role uh, in founding the Warsaw Stock Exchange uh, and his leading role in Poland's large-scale privatization program, I think we can safely assume that his appointment uh, to the budget portfolio was greeted in London with a popping of champagne corks. Uh, but of course, Janusz Lewandowski's uh, job is not to do Britain any favours, or, or Poland uh, for that matter, as his eye, of course, has to be exclusively on the community interest, on the union interest. Now, what that interest is, in the context of uh, spending money, is a subject of some controversy, as I'm sure you know. And things are only going to be getting hotter in the next uh, 12 uh, to 18 months, because the member states will start uh, haggling over the next financial uh, framework um, and the EU spending priorities up to uh, around about 2020. Um, and I'm sure we can be sure that the usual suspects are getting ready to play hardball. Uh, France obviously, will have its concerns about the common agricultural policy, the UK about protecting its rebate, um, the southern members wanting to protect cohesion funds, and so on uh, and so on. So we are very much looking forward to what Commissioner Lewandowski has to say to us about these things uh, this evening. Um, after the big public consultation which the European uh, Commission launched on possible ways of reforming the EU budget, I think that was back in 2007, yes. if I'm not mistaken, um, we've actually heard remarkably uh, little 
Uh, and when the uh, Commission was, to some people's minds, not before time, uh, getting ready to publish its response uh, last, uh, last autumn, uh, a, very, uh, uh, a very liberal Anglo-Saxon draft indeed was leaked to the press and was promptly blown uh, out of the water by um, um, some countries' diplomats or press. I'm, I'm really not sure whose. Um, but, uh, so uh, the economic liberals amongst us are left wondering what will become of this aspiration for an overhauled, modernised EU budget to meet the challenges of the 21st uh, century. So, Commissioner Lewandowski, we are uh, very much looking forward to what you have to say to us. Um, as per our usual format, uh, you've kindly agreed to take questions uh, from the audience afterwards. I know you won't be shy about coming forward uh, with, the, with, the, with those. And, and afterwards, we'll have a vote of thanks um, from Philip Souter, who's Director of Business for a New Europe. So, without further ado, Commissioner Lewandowski, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Good evening. Uh, thank you for your very, very kind introduction and the invitation to this prestigious London sanctuary of the dismal science, as we often depict uh, economic science, even more dismal nowadays, I think, when the economists have to communicate bitter truth to the politicians, and the politicians are to sell austerity to their voters. Last time I was here, 20 years ago, when we came for consultation with prominent UK economists over the scenarios of revival of then socialist economy of Poland, Slovakia and the other, and the other countries. And uh, of course this, there was a huge transfer of knowledge via the know-how fund established by Margaret Thatcher. Huge challenge also I was for privatization, trying to sell nobody's property of unknown value to people who have no money to buy it. That was my definition of post-communist privatization. But seen from this very perspective, uh, seeing Poland where it is now, I can say that this is a very optimistic historical perspective. And even the today's crisis seems to me manageable from this very perspective. And, and also, the answer to the provocative uh, title, can we still afford Europe, is, is, could be very simple in my generation. Yes, we can. As in my generation, uh, we do remember what was the Soviet empire. We understand the cost of, of freedom, of mobility, of stability taken for granted in the younger generation in, in the Western Europe. So for us, yes, we can. We should afford Europe taken for granted in, in the other parts of our continent. But I'm also conscious that this very simple answer to, to, the, to the question cannot be everybody's answer. And the value added of European integration is contested nowadays. Therefore, I would like to, uh, to give the answer to, to response to the three questions. Number one is, should and will Europe be able to find collective solution to the pressing challenges, economic global challenges now of, of our time? Second, to what extent the economic governance economic governance package that was released yesterday by the Commission of how to discipline the member states could have impact upon the, 
traditional dilemma whether we should focus on fiscal consolidation or economic growth. And finally, and this is the final and most important part, what are the prospects for the European Union budgets in time of austerity and whether they could contribute to solving our problems. Let me start, however, with a small clarification on the European budget, because much is misunderstood. It is generally smaller than many believe. Uh, compare, just, just please compare 123 billion euro, that is the amount of this year, with the UK budget, should be around 760 billion for 2010-11. So here is the comparison. European budget that is equal to 1% of accumulated GNI, 2.5% of the public expenditure. Therefore, we cannot link too many expectations with a communal budget of, of, this, of this size. This is not like the budget of the federal structures. If we take United States, the federal budget is equal to 25% of GDP of the United States. In Europe, which is not a federal and is not going to be a federal state, this is 1% of accumulated GDP. This is important to understand and to place properly the, the, uh, the European budget. Uh, the structure, which is also important to know, the structure of the European budget has evolved strongly accordingly to the changing priorities of the European Union. The beginning was with typical for the hungry post-war generation was with the, with the common agricultural policy. That was still 64% of European budget in, 2000, in 1988, down to 40% nowadays. Uh, since the 80s, when the club of member states accepted, invited Portugal, Ireland, Spain, and Greece, the agricultural policy has been supplemented with regional policy for compensation for those less affluent countries coming to the family. And now this is close to 36% regional policy. Regional policy, by its nature, needs predictability. Therefore, together with the regional policy as the second pillar of the budget, what was born was, is, is called multi-annual frameworks now seven years, setting the ceilings of expenditure for seven years. Nowadays, this is until 2000, uh, 2013. And the new emphasis on innovation, on global uh, ambitions of the European Union, on external policy, on competitiveness, are also increasingly reflected in this budgetary structure. Now, one delicate point, that is Euro bureaucracy. Normally, the easiest way to uh, to, uh, to attack European Union. Again, there are some misunderstandings, although there is, there is a lot of justified criticism. The European institutions in their cost that is equal to 6% of the overall European budget. In, uh, in many municipalities like London, like Paris and the others, or in, uh, typical for the national or local or, or municipal public administration is that pure administrative costs are amounting to one quarter of the budget, not 6%. We are employing a huge army of 30,000 people in many places of Europe, 
but Marie of Paris, Marie de Paris, uh, that is the municipal structure, is employing f 43,000 people. So again, the proportions are important <coughs> to know. And what is important to know is that we have zero growth policy and I will be not popular with my colleagues as I am very much in, in favor of self-restraint and administrative costs. What, what's more, what is the important characteristic, what is distincting for the European budget is that we cannot run a deficit. This is good, this is good for healthy budgetary discipline. And now, budget will be the light motif of my presentation, but I won't place it in, uh, I would like to place it uh, in the much wider perspective. The first question as to what extent we can afford uh, communal, common solutions to the ongoing economic crisis. Economic crisis, the one especially that is with the global dimension is normally provoking two opposite reactions. On one side that is awareness of interdependence, spillover effect of Lehman Brothers was enough to learn what does it, what does it mean spillover and uh, spillover effects, but it also uh, that, that is encouraging to come closer to seek common solution and not individual solution. But on the other hand, in time of crisis, crisis is normally coupled with a lot of national egoism, uh, unilateral action, protectionist moves, uh, known in some areas of Europe, of continental Europe, as a new type of economic patriotism. And we can see both tendencies in Europe, but it is a fact of life that to, in 2009, this was a national state that was reacting to the, to the crisis. This was difficult for United Europe to react as rapidly as national state better equipped. The name of the game in the European Union is the compromise. Compromise is the name of the game. And it takes time to find a common position for 27 countries. There are four with some moral cost for entrepreneurship also, a lot of rent-seeking, this was about national stimulus packages or rec rec uh, rescue packages before the European Union was able to find a common position. But that is also the honorable tradition of the European Union to change, to turn crisis into opportunity. There are two theories describing European Union as a sui generis, uh, generis structure. One is crisis theory. Crisis is always a catalyst of something new. Second is bicycle theory. You cannot stop pedaling because you risk falling down. There are two, uh, there are two so you have to move forward. There are two theories on, on, on the nature of, of the European Union. And it was really proved that crisis could be the opportunity when the national state, which was the solution to the problem with rescue packages also in UK, himself became a problem due to this expensive, and the problem was, was discovered as a sovereign debt problem with dramatic dimension of Greece. Then, under the pressure of time, we had to find common solution in this fight between states and financial markets. The first package, as you know, was for Greece, 110 billion euro, but in order to avoid domino effect, 
In May, what was agreed was much bigger package to stabilize financial markets of 750 billion euro. And here is the link with the European budget already, because the European budget became a part of this common solution to the crisis. So-called financial, financial, European financial stability mechanism, this is the name of this huge fund of 750 billion euro, can provide up, up to euro 60 billion guaranteed lending to the member states in need. That is the budget, European budget as a collateral of the loans, giving somehow transferring its credibility to attract loans at the low interest rate and financing can be attracted at triple A uh, conditions. But this is by no means a free ride. If you want and ask for money, you have, uh, you have undergone the borrowing lending operation scrutiny, very close to IMF scrutiny that is conditional, there is a surcharge uh, rate. So this is, with many, this is about conditionality. But what is important for me as someone responsible for the European budget is that apart from what was existing so far, so far was existing so-called balance of payments facility, that is the facility for loans for non-eurozone countries, up to 50 billion euro. It was granted, loan was granted to Hungary, to Latvia, uh, to Romania, up to 14.6 billion euro. But with this very flexible interpretation of the Lisbon Treaty, this provision was extended for Eurozone. This was very flexible interpretation of the Lisbon Treaty, but now we have guarantees up to 110 billion euro, and this is important, very important development for the, for the European uh, budget. It became a solution, a part of the solution to the common problem, to this rescue package in order to avoid domino effect throughout Europe. But this, these are so-called fireman interventions, fireman interventions, under the pressure of time, help Greek, uh, help to Greece, uh, dramatically agreed package of 750 billion euro known as a financial stability mechanism. What is really the test for the European institution is the ability to draw the real lessons from the crisis and to build the real preventive structures, preventive structure, not just react reacting ex post, but to prevent the crisis in the future as the crisis has clearly revealed major drawbacks in the construction of the monetary union. That was very clear, that was very clear to everybody. We cannot expect, uh, for sure, one cannot expect, uh, as you know, better than ever, uh, than uh, anybody here in the London School of Economics. Uh, there was, a, I, one could hear a lot of very proud declarations that given the global crisis, we should rearrange the global financial uh, architecture, but globally. Nothing of that really happened. What uh, the paradox is that after so many meetings, G8, 
uh, G20, what was reinforced was the institution of the L'Ancien Regime, that is uh, International Monetary Fund. Instead of globally agreed rules of the game, a new financial order, we, we have on one side of the Atlantic so-called the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, known also as Dodd-Frank Bill. On the other side, regulation imposed, trying to be imposed uh, by Monsieur, my, my colleague from, French colleague from the Commission, Michel Barnier, uh, who is trying to impose over the countries uh, various types of regulation. I know I'm not, I'm not going to discuss this because I am here in London and this is the place where the ideas of Commission in this respect are highly controversial. But what was revealed in the crisis is that really we have contradiction to this naive belief that it is unnecessary to have fiscal coordination in the Eurozone because if a country is running an uh, unsustainable fiscal deficit, it would be forced to reform by a rise of interest rate demanded by the lenders. No, it, has, it hasn't materialized. Somehow the credibility of Germany was conferred upon the other states and there was not uh, that sort of reaction forcing to reform until we see the dimension of the, of the, uh, of the Greek crisis. Therefore, yesterday, again, this is going to be controversial, European Commission has released a so-called economic governance toolbox, preventive and corrective mechanism as a lesson from the crisis. This is about so-called European semester that is evaluating the draft budgets of the national states, controversial enough but somehow accepted already politically. This is about sanctions and enforced deposits. Again, we have link with the European budget. European budget is a toolbox of sanctions, not only collateral for loans, but also became, this is to be developed in the other proposals, as a sort of toolbox of sanctions, of typical stick and carrot mechanism for the financial, for reinforcing stability and, and growth pact, reinforcing financial discipline in the member states. My impression is that uh, it is not going to work properly, but this is very private opinion, uh, if this is not coupled with the domestic, with the national legislation in the type of what in German is called the Schuldenbremse, that are, that are legal limits of indebtedness enforced by the national regulation. The same is existing in the country of my origin, in Poland. We have constitutional limit of the national debt up to 60% of GDP. So I would like to see the toolbox released yesterday in the Commission of how to enforce the Stability and Growth Pact via sanctions, enforced, imposed deposits, interest-free, but then non-interest-free, with a national legislation that is, that, is limiting, that is limiting the scale of indebtedness in the future of the member states. That is how I see effective mechanism of economic governments in Europe. And uh, what is important, apart from the link again with the European budget, also this is important for the future of European budget, but this is now a toolbox 
of, for, for enforcing discipline is that yesterday uh, Commission has released a clear signal of what is more important, financial consolidation or reliance. This was completely different from the signal coming from Washington with dominance of jobs and growth and somehow <laughs> neglecting financial consolidation. Here is the clear signal and of course we can discuss whether this is up to the signals of the market because the financial markets are sending us very non-straightforward signals. One day they are really about worrying about debt and deficit and indicating that sort of inquietude by the rising, the rising interest rates. But on the other day, there is clear worry whether austerity is about the impact of austerity upon the economic uh, performance of a country, but also the ability to repay the debt repay the loans in the case, in the case of, of Greece. So, of course, any medicine that is, that is uh, working or not working in excessive, in excessive dose could be a little bit dangerous. And fiscal recommend, uh, consolidation, which is the choice of a commission, imposed, trying to be imposed by European Commission, uh, is, is a positive objective as long as it does not kill business and private initiative. Here is my liberal uh, declara declaration uh, at least. But this is again linked with the European budget. And now the summing up of this part of my presentation. European budget tends to be more and more relevant. Nobody was expecting that sort of development as a collateral of loans, as a part of rescue stabilization mechanism up to 110 billion euro. On the other hand, it has become also a toolbox for economic discipline because this is the way we can impose sanctions, for example, cut the transfers or suspend. The beginning is to suspend the transfers going from Brussels to, to Warsaw to, um, uh, to Berlin and the other places, not to affect the final beneficiary. This is punishment for the finance minister only at the beginning. But then, instead of suspensions, that is cutting the transfers. So here is the budget as a toolbox of economic discipline. What's more, in the future European budget will be also a sort of risk-sharing partner uh, President Barroso has promised euro bonds for investing into the euro projects in infrastructure, which is also important future development. We have to extend the possibilities of this 123 billion euro via risk sharing schemes involving European budget as a, as a guarantee, European Investment Bank as a loan as a loan and seeking leverage effect with the private, uh, private partners and there are already empirical uh, examples in Europe that we can achieve via one euro put from the, contributed from the European budget 40, uh, 40 euro in this risk, risk sharing uh, scheme so this is very important in, in my also thinking about the future of European budget it cannot be limited to 123 billion euro. We have austerity, we have limitations, therefore we should seek leverage effect via risk sharing schemes and via public-private uh, 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 schemes. 
but this is not about the traditional functions of a, of a budget. And now we are about the traditional delivery that, that is normally expected from the European budget. In 2000, that is not, that is to 6% for Eurocrats. I am now one of these Eurocrats, of course. But this is only 6%, not 25, that is usual for municipalities. I think I don't, I have no clear judgment evaluation of the, of the structure of the budget of London municipality, but probably this is around uh, one, uh, one quarter uh, going purely to to, 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 for financing the administration. But what is a real delivery expected from the European budget is, for example, 4,000 universities participating in so-called Erasmus scheme more than 300,000 participants. Uh, this is about mobility of younger generation of Europe. Clear value added uh, uh, from the budget. I don't think this prestigious temple of economics is so self-sufficient, I think, that it's not participating and it's not chartered, I think, to the Erasmus exchange, but it has its own means to expand internationally. But for the smaller universities, this is very important to, to be a part of the student exchange because this is about thousands of young people with ability to have a scholarship in the various places of, of, of Europe. The uh, European budget is also about 6 billion euros 2009 for research. That is equal to, 300, uh, to, to 400 grants on, on research signed 2009, because now I have clear statistical picture of 2009, when, uh, that is why uh, I can provide some figures. Uh, that is 38 billion, very much criticized in UK for farmers, for European farmers. That is still 40% of the budget. But you should know that after good years, 2007, 2006, 2008 was a bad year for European agriculture. In 2009, the revenues of the European farmers on average declined by 12%. Very sharp, very, very sharp decline. And now the subsidies from the European budget are on average half of the income of a typical European farmer. This is, this is, uh, this is uh, qu quite a lot. There are 75 million participants of so-called European social fund actions. So here is, here is the typical delivery of what we may expect from the European budget. I was previously discussing the new functions developing very speedily up to the necessities, and necessities are the rescue packages for, for, uh, for, for the countries in need, or the necessity to, to impose financial discipline upon the member states. And now we are back to these traditional functions and to the potential future of, of, of uh, what, is, uh, what might be in coming negotiations. The calendar is as follows. In October, we are producing a so-called mid-term review. Review is about conclusions, lessons, not so much future-oriented, not so much awaited. Probably European Parliament is the only place really uh, looking to what is the substance. In this very budgetary review, we are to study 
this is very highly controversial issue, eventual new resources of the European Union. So far, in contradiction to the treaties, the European budget is built in 76% on the national direct contributions from the member states. This is contrary to the treaties. Only small percentage of the revenue are so-called own resources, custom duties a little bit from VAT and so on. I am not, uh, I am liberally oriented personality, but I have, and this is a part of a mandate, study in the most neutral way what is feasible and whether there are some own resources that could supply European budget and reduce the contribution from Herr Schäuble, from Madame Lagarde and Mr. Osborne. That, is, that could be a sort of miracle, but I have to try. I, I need, I need uh, to try, and this is the, the name of this exercise, of how in the time of austerity reduce the national contribution and whether this is feasible to find additional own resources. This is to be placed in the so-called budgetary review coming on the 19th of October. Then we have two future-oriented papers, Future-oriented papers are on major spending areas, on the future of agricultural policy in Europe and of the future of regional policy in Europe. This is a sort of foreplay. Then comes 2011, when Hungarians are handing over their presidency to the Polish presidency. We should present the vision of what might be the future of European budget post-2013. Post there is still a controversy whether it should be five years or seven years. There, are, there is a position of European Parliament that after, after trying seven years in many, uh, since 1993, we should adjust the mandate of Parliament, which is for five years, to the duration of a financial perspective, that is to shorten, to reduce it to five years. My innovative idea that we could adjust in the other way, extending the mandate of a parliament to seven years, was not taken on board. Therefore, I, could, I should take uh, the, 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 the issue seriously. And in mid-2011, we should know the vision of the future. Of course, it has to be adjusted to the new global challenges reinforcing external actions. We have launched a separate external action service with Baroness Ashton as a president of, of this external action service. We should place much more of focus upon innovation, competitive Europe. That is very clear to me. But what will be strongly defended and here is realism and experience, will be agricultural policy. If on the invitation of one finance minister, not necessarily from Warsaw, not at all, 23 are coming, that means that only three are miss four are missing out of 27. That is, that is a good indication that uh, the agricultural lobby will play a big game over the future of European budget. That is for me very clear. Uh, as for cohesion, we need still a lot 
in terms of non-cohesive Europe because still these two parts of the continent, one from behind the Iron Curtain and the other enjoying democratic and market economy uh, after, after the war, are not, uh, there are too many differentials resulting in a big flow flows of people seeking uh, uh, good job opportunities and Great Britain enjoying several hundred thousand poles is I think a, a, a good, uh, but that is plenty of knowledge how it is, how it is uh, really working. We are trying to take into account the climate. Europe as it was it wasn't for a longer period of time, is full of fears. What was good about European Project is that uh, European Project has relieved the post-war generation of Europe from the existential fears. Now they are coming back about future, about material, uh, material development, and here is the climate that is not good uh, for the rational discussion over the future. And I have to take into account, of course, that is very important. The name of the game will be compromise, the compromise. If we were to find the compromise between 27, we cannot afford big losers and big winners. That is the wisdom of how to find the deal and equilibrium between 27 different national interests that are, that are going to be very visible when we release the, our vision of the future. Then starts Im immediately the quarrel over money. The quarrel over money is never uniting to Europe. This is always divisive and this is not good for European spirit, but we have to go through. That is no, no other choice. So I can enter the discussion over the future in more detailed way, but if I was this, well, nominated as a liberal and free market oriented uh, personality, let me final statement that is to prove that I am. There are, public, there are limits in the public expenditure as to the goals that we can achieve via the public expenditure, not only at the European level but also at the national level. What is a real common solution to the global challenges we are now confronted with in Europe is a common market. This is job, unfinished job, not yet finalized, somehow suspended due to the problems, due to this wave of national uh, protectionism, of economic patriotism, this is the name for, for, for protectionism in the continental Europe. If we are serious about challenges, the answer is not only about public money, there are limits, they can deliver. What, when we are serious, this is not accomplished job of single market, of common market, together with very unpopular welfare reforms, gradual dismantling of the welfare model of Europe, which is no longer sustainable, to enforce more of labor flexibility in order to compensate for the loss of rate of exchange manipulation as a way of adjustment. There is no other way. We cannot afford to stay with the present day model. And here is my free market oriented or liberal declaration that is going beyond discussion over the, over the European budget. Generally, I think that is my impression 
uh, that the leaders of Europe know perfectly what should be done. But let me quote uh, Prime Minister uh, Juncker. He's saying, we know, we, the leaders of Europe, we know what should be done, but we don't know how to be re-elected when we do what should be done. Here is, here is uh, the real problem. And here is the, uh, the gap between economic necessity and political demand for real changes that are really necessary in Europe. So let me stay with this final statement that is going beyond budget, and I am ready to confront this demanding audience. I remember how Mark Twain was encouraging his, his younger friend when he was confronting younger and demanding audience. He said, relax, don't be afraid. We are not expecting much from you and nothing special from you. That is also my expectations. Uh, my expectations, thank you for your attention. Well, um, I think we all agree, um, beyond the strict requirements of courtesy to our guests, that was really a great talk. It was very rich. It was very detailed. Um, I, I particularly enjoyed, and you raise my understanding, I'm not an expert on budgetary matters, of uh, encouraged me to think about uh, the budget in all sorts of other ways, other the traditional textbook way, some goes in agriculture, some goes in cohesion funds, some goes in external and so on, but you place to contextualise its role, evolving role in the context of the financial crisis very interestingly. I was struck by what you said and uh, interested to hear that as much as 50% of the income of European farmers last year was actually from subsidies. I hadn't realised it's uh, quite as, uh, as high as that. Um, you'll have prompted, I'm sure, all sorts of thoughts uh, and questions. Um, I'll be very boring and make the usual point as chair. Um, there will be a, a portable mic uh, coming around. If you uh, kindly sort of identify, when, raise your hand. Um, do you want to take questions individually or in groups? Up to you. I'm adjusting to Monsieur organizer. Okay. I think we'll take perhaps a couple. The convention is either one or three. I find three means sometimes questions don't get answered, or perhaps a couple at a time. Um, uh, please uh, make the question very short and to the point. Don't smuggle a second question in under it. Uh, no speeches. Uh, everybody laughs and nods when I say that, but people still do it. Right? So you will just be cut off in some We'll find some way of cutting you off. Keep it short and sweet. And why as I say, why questions people. only? I would like to learn something from this. Oh, you will. I'm sure. From an LSE of audience? I, of course. I'm sure, I'm sure you will. Um, okay. So who'd like to kick off? Uh, gentleman over there. Yep. And then I'll take one more whilst I'm, whilst I'm at it. Um, anyone else uh, would like to? Um, Professor Ian Begg. Afterwards. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you very much, uh, Commissioner, for your most interesting talk and my admiration for your eloquence in expressing yourself in a language which is not your mother tongue. I envy this. Um, I, there's a whole number of questions that are raised in, in your, your speech, but I'll just confine myself to two aspects of connected questions. And there's an important one that seems to be frequently ignored, and that is the lack of financial discipline. Um, for I think over the course of 15 years, the accounts of the European Commission have not passed the auditing stage. In fact, when I think it was the Deputy General Commissioner Kinnock, in fact, was in charge, I think he dismissed, in fact, one of the Dutch auditors rather than investigate the problem. So that's one aspect. And connected with that, um, 
I actually did teach in uh, a large European country, I won't mention it, but two of my students, uh, they have different nationalities of large countries in the European Union, and both of them spent about four or five months working in the European offices of their own countries. Both reported to me, one of them said that she always thought her country was relatively clean. It, in fact, generally was regarded actually as uh, a clean administration and government, but she was shocked by the amount of fiddling of the books that went on in the European office of her country. The other student, also coming from a big country, but is a byword for corruption, she wasn't shocked by the amount of corruption that was going on in the <laughs> European office of her country. I'll just, there are lots more, but I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Ian Begg. Uh, thank you. Ian Beck from European <laughs> Institute to LSE. Uh, Commissioner, I'm sure you're familiar with the film Groundhog Day. Oh, It's a film where I'm so busy. With <laughs> <laughs> I'm so busy with my boring budget, but I can't. It's, it's a film where somebody wakes up, goes through all the things in, in one day, and he's very puzzled by some of the things that happened to him. He wakes up the, the, same, the next day, and exactly the same things happen to him. And the third day. In 1999, we were all talking about exchanging the common agricultural policy for the British rebate. In 2005, we were talking about exchanging the common agricultural policy for the British rebate. In 2013, will it be Groundhog Day again? (laughs) Two questions, fast questions. Yes, I, I feel now that I am in Eurosceptic London. Uh, <laughs> uh, is, uh, you are right that uh, somehow, for some reasons, the dramatic dimensions of the debt and deficit crisis were overlooked, although there were some signals. One of the lessons I haven't mentioned is now about surveillance that is going much deeper beyond fiscal deficit, which is completely irrelevant when we want to trace the, uh, the reasons of, of the problem of Spain and, and, and uh, also nowadays Ireland. So surveillance, but by Eurostat based on original data and and not on the delivery from Athens to Brussels or from Warsaw to Brussels. If you are building your picture upon delivery from the capital city of a member state to uh, to, to Brussels, you could be not quite, well, you, you could be somehow misguided by the statistics. So what is important now is to be with original primary data in the member states. This is one of the lessons, not fully corresponding to, to, the, to the scale of, of, of challenge, but that is honorable uh, tradition of European Union to, to draw some conclusions and not to repeat, I am then coming to this recycling of Euro, uh, of, of uh, Professor Beck has mentioned, but at least some lessons are being taken seriously and uh, basing assessment, evaluation on, 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 on many factors going beyond budgetary deficit and basing the judgment upon primary data and not on delivery is one of the the lessons seriously taken. By the way, we have now a serious debate uh, 
interesting debate of how to include into the uh, statistical overview or excessive demand procedure the cost, inevitable cost of pension reforms in Europe. This is a very serious question and uh, because now the uh, pension reforms are deteriorating statistics of the countries that are undertaking capital-funded uh, pension, uh, pension system and now uh, yesterday there was opening, for example, the net cost of the pension reform in very few countries taking risk in Europe and this is aging continent with the cost of aging not only about pensions but also medical care of the aging population. Uh, we have some opening and the cost of pension reform will be deducted digressively from the calculation of that. So here is another way of being more in line with reality, with changing reality. And now about corruption. Yes, I can admit that public money means inevitable, or inevitable, I cannot say it, but, but this is the, uh, I shouldn't say it, but uh, this is about public money, either national or European. I, I have to say that there was even overreaction to the problems of Santer Commission. Overreaction took the uh, materialized in the financial regulation of Europe, which is a nightmare for beneficiaries, especially for the small beneficiaries that are being granted small grants for research, for example. This is like bureaucratic nightmare. We are now trying to, uh, to uh, re uh, liberalize financial regulation, but I am afraid that it could produce the other symptoms you are talking about. But I have no good answer to, to, to this problem. I cannot say, I shouldn't say that with public money we, have, we are always at risk of some sort. That is not the same type of expenditure as private expenditure. I am again liberal in this statement. Uh, we should do as much as possible, but if we do too much, you can see the structure in, in the European Commission when uh, every manager has one supervisor who is supervising his, his, his activity. And this is also exaggeration that is about additional administrative uh, costs. Not perfect answer, nobody's perfect, but also public spending is not perfect. And now, very much UK question about recycling of some topics in negotiations since many years, that is the trade, final trade and final round of negotiations. Uh, we, we, we owe it to Margaret Thatcher, perhaps younger generation is not well informed, but the British privilege called British rebate was born. Uh, in, 2000, uh, in, in 1984 with energetic action by Margaret Thatcher. I was her guide when he, she visited for the first time non, uh, the post-communist country and trying to find a, a place of some, I would say, prototype privatization. Uh, privatizations uh, in, in Poland, but this was different England. That is important dimension of, 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 of a discussion over the British rebate. This was the England that was below the 
European average in terms of per capita income. That was like 85%. Now Great Britain, although in some crises, is 115 more or less of the average, of the European average. This was less rich, less affluent country. Agricultural expenditure was more than 60% of the budget. Now it's 40%. The, uh, some, uh, uh, some, something has changed and it is going to influence the negotiations but you may be right that in the final round final final after the midnight normally uh, what, is on the, what will be on the table we, I, I'm, I cannot exclude it really being uh, with some experience from the previous rounds of negotiation. What could appear on the final table is British rebate versus agricultural spending. And you will be right, as usual, with your insight into the European business that we are again about recycling. I would like to avoid it, seriously. There are different techniques to avoid it, but not the, uh, none of this technique is, 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 uh, is about uh, neglecting the British privilege, especially when you are in London, uh, uh, because the net position of any country is needed to have the final deal. The name of the game is the compromise. 27 hands in favor of the agreement. It might be at the cost of Privilege, which is producing the other privileges, and now we have on the revenue side a sort of system of absolutely non-transparent exceptions to the exceptions. That is how the system of European revenues is being built. Thank you. Okay. Further questions to take this gentleman over there, and then perhaps anybody on this side. Oh, shorter answers. Yes, I know. Okay, the lady in the lady in pink. Okay. Um, yeah, please. Peter, uh, yeah, I just found it. A bit Can you say who you are? Please. Can you say who you are? Or where you're from? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Peter Bitsok. I'm LSE. Half Russian, half Hungarian. And you're LSE student? Uh, no, I'm not a student. Oh, okay. Here. Uh, okay. Maybe next year. Well, uh, yeah, I just found it controversial actually uh, about the the EU principle, really, of or even we hear in the or in the world about austerity plans, and even the EU says that. But on the other hand. The EU does increase its budget and gives out more loans. Whereas what I found, I think where uh, Greece got into trouble, I think it was even Belgium who who landed uh, some some a huge amounts in collateral to Greece. Therefore, the EU could probably widen this and and create a market within the EU to smoothen these lending procedures instead of actually giving uh, countries which are not very disciplined uh, a zero-fund uh, loans. So don't you see that actually, from the perspective that we see that it's very liberal, we actually move into, again, a procedure of, of more, more bureaucracy, where the EU will spend, well, first, more uh, funds on, on giving out loans, and on the very same time, also, we're looking forward to, to receive back those loans, and. Uh, we will have auditing costs, so also bureaucracy creates uh, future costs. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Lady in Pink. Apologies for standing up a bit crooked, I have lots of bags. Uh, so um, I was wondering about the toolbox you were mentioning, 
and uh, the economic discipline it's going to promote. Is this going to only address uh, the states that have been taking loans from uh, the European Union, or generally uh, all the member states, knowing that some of the members of the European economic area have gone a bit astray from the Maastricht criteria they met? And apologies, my name is Alexandra, I'm from Romania. Thank you. There was one question, but many, uh, I would say, uh, uh, sub-questions in, in, in your question. Uh, we have a problem now. I, I have personally the problem with that sort of radical austerity that is being undertaken, for example, here in Great Britain. And I, and I can understand the frustration of a political class when they see that we are about small growth for 2011 of the European budget. Uh, these things seem to be incompatible, but we have different responsibilities. I think really, and this is my position, that the primary responsibility of finance ministers throughout Europe is to regain confidence of the financial markets. That is precondition for sustainable recovery, for sustainable Growth. I am happy that, for example, Germany so much criticised and still criticised not, uh, not stimulating domestic demand. But uh, with the figures for 2010, should prove that really uh, with you can you can combine growth with uh, with uh, with a, a strong measure of fiscal discipline. Although in Germany this is rather 2011 and 2012. We have different responsibilities. For the national leaders, this is primarily to regain the confidence of financial markets. We can help with our guarantees, uh, guaranteed loans, stabilization mechanism, but the main responsibility is at the national level. The European uh, budget has different sort of responsibilities. Uh, the measure of my responsibility is that I am planning for the next year many billion euro below what is allowed in agreed by 27 countries financial uh, framework for 2011, 2012, 2013. But I know and I can have a lot of evidence that in the national, uh, with, uh, national austerity plans what is cut immediately is investment. And many, in many areas of uh, European budget, this is about investment flows. This is like a small anti-crisis, regional, local, sectoral package that is promoting cooperation, that is promoting jobs. Therefore, this is rather different uh, type of responsibility. The delivery, not in terms of this collateral of, of loans and so on, but a real delivery to the beneficiaries that is conducive to, 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 to job creation and economic growth with modest, modest means. What is and will be extremely unpopular is the growth in administration. Unfortunately, under the pretext of, of, of Lisbon Treaty, many European institutions are eager to, to expand. Uh, I am already unpopular with my friends and some institutions as I would like uh, to, uh, I know that in order to regain uh, 
credibility of European budget, we, we should demonstrate self-restraint. For, for me, this is very clear because I am uh, uh, then uh, a sort of seller of, uh, of the figures of, uh, of the budgets when I visit the other capitals or, or, uh, or, or, or trying to sell to the finance ministers who are imposing austerity measures at home. So clearly, if we want to defend the real delivery of, uh, of European budgets, you, we should demonstrate self-restraint. And my experience says that in order to limit the administrative growth, but please remember that this is 6% of the total. This is really is, uh, in many areas of Europe, including UK, misunderstood. This is 6%. There are, there are real limits. But if you want to avoid more, we shouldn't launch any new institution. Any new institution launched demands each year more money and more posts because this, this is in the nature of institution to expand. And this is the first break to be done. No more mushrooming of European institutions. Difficult job because any member states, including new, would like to have at least one agency, two agencies, and, they are, and defending very strongly, of course, uh, once uh, it has been decided. But this is the first lesson. If you launch the institution, you, can, you may expect next year 100 posts, in two years two more, uh, 200 posts and additional money for administration. So this is my uh, answer, but probably not complete to your multidimensional question. And now about toolbox. This is for everybody, not for, uh, for countries asking for money or in desperate uh, state uh, economic conditions. The easier part of the job is to develop the toolbox for Eurozone. This is based on Article 136 of the Lisbon Treaty. This is not about flexibility of Lisbon Treaty. So far, this was too much of flexibility. The paragraph on natural catastrophes was used, about natural catastrophes, was used to help some countries in need. There is clear non-bailout clause in, in the, in this, uh, that one country cannot be responsible for the debts of the other country. We have a lot of politically motivated flexibility, but there are limits. Uh, therefore, it is easier now to develop a toolbox, and what was presented yesterday was for Eurozone countries. The next part that is going via budget, involving budgetary sanctions, needs some flexibility in interpretation of the Lisbon Treaty and is legally contested a little bit also within Commission whether we can impose, we cannot. I think with political will we can. For me this is very important that, uh, that uh, we are discussing 27 countries because now there is a real danger of two-speed Europe when we build separate structures for Eurozone discipline and non-Eurozone country. We would like to be a members, I cannot say like this, this is not the language of the Commission of a country of my origin, the country I know best, this is the language, uh, uh, should be in future a member of Euroclub. Of course, the country I know best would like to be a member of, of the Euroclub that is granting mm, credibility and not being a source of problems, additional problems that it is now. The paradox is that, that Eurozone countries have on average more deficit and debt than non-Euro countries.
here is the paradox of today's Europe. Um, time march is on. I'm going to take one more question uh, from now. Is that Savier? Let's start Savier Sticker from the French Embassy. Oh yes, agriculture coming. <laughs> um, yes, please. Um, Commissioner, you have been public uh, over the last few weeks regarding the uh, British uh, rebate. Uh, and since you have mentioned uh, the uh, ideas that you, you were considering uh, in order to, to, to avoid it or to go around it, uh, could you uh, elaborate a bit more about that? And second, um, in light of your, your, your contacts in Britain, do you retain that uh, what matters uh, is uh, the rebate uh, as, uh, as, as a symbol, as a political symbol, or alternatively, uh, the status of Britain as, as a net contributor in comparison to, to others? Thank you. Thank you. That was the question I wanted to avoid. <laughs> coming. Uh, very cautious answer. I didn't know he was coming. Incidentally. I'm delighted to see him because he's a good friend, but uh, this is not a trap. Um, very co very cautious like answer. I can afford not producing any reactions from the British administration. Anyway, they would come in, in, with, with time. Uh, I was indicating that we are in different time, that original justifications of Margaret Thatcher's are only partially valid in 2010. Original justification was that uh, England was below, not as affluent as it is today, that the European budget was mainly about agriculture, uh, some, other, uh, some other points also very important, and now we, we should rethink, we should discuss without taboo, with full understanding what does it mean in political terms for Great Britain, the British rebate. And I am with full respect. I know that the, the most stupid way of preparing the climate for negotiations would be to provoke one of the major players in, in, in this negotiation, which is, which is Great Britain. But the fact of life is probably know that the volume of British rebate is falling dramatically. This was 6 billion euro with many countries participating in it until 2008. 2010 should be around 3 billion euro, quite a lot, but uh, there, is, uh, uh, there is a tendency to reduce and will be no more than that but by the end of a financial perspective. But in order to find the agreement, we should respect the political significance of British privileges and heritage of Margaret Thatcher. I know that this is good for final, uh, final agreement. However, we should be very open the way we are dealing with this, with this uh, issue. So probably this is my answer, delicate as, as, as such. Even-handed, judicious. Uh, but that was the second answer. part. I think I, I, I forgot. Savi, what was the? Sorry. The thing is to avoid it, to also go around it. Not for today. Not for today. <laughs> that is the mystery of negotiations. Of if I just, just pick up very briefly on your point about how politicians know what needs to be done when you talk about Juncker, 
um, Prime Minister Juncker earlier. Politicians know what needs to be done in terms of economic reform and structural reform, but there's the reality of elections, the fact to live in democracies. Um, I was reading very recently, there was a, a, a very interesting study done by one of British universities looking across Europe at where there have been serious retrenchment, austerity programs and spending cuts. And there is no evidence that apart from short-term unpopularity and people going out on the streets and so on, there is no evidence of lasting damage, particularly at the big elections that follow, to the governments who do this. It's as if the politicians are actually frightening themselves more than is actually the case. There is a sort of grudging respect or understanding of why tough medicine sometimes needs to be delivered. We'll see what happens in this country in this couple of years. But just getting back to the point of the realities of the political context, you're referring there the case of Britain, uh, and you know we have the political context that we do, and you have to be mindful of that. But more broadly, this point about politicians being spooked by the electorate, and in practice, as I say, some very interesting work showing, in fact, there's very, very little correlation. Very and, encouraging statement. I was yeah. from the, I am from the generation of winning reforms. The Polish reforms were winning, but the whole generation, not only in Poland, was losing elections. Mm. That was that was the price. If there is reward for being brave, that is creating a statesman out of politician, and it would be very good for Europe. Okay. Um, uh, it just remains for us now, unfortunately we'll have to bring things to a close. We have a vote of thanks composed by uh, the Director of Business for New Europe, which is a pro-European, economically liberal, the main pro-European organisation in this country. Philip Suter is the Director, um, and he's going to just say a few words. If, ladies and gentlemen, if you could just stay... Well, Morris, first of all, thank you so much for chairing. I don't think I've ever heard such a ruthless introduction to a round of questions, but you very successfully didn't cut anyone off, which was very, very kind of you. Um, but I think maybe your ruthless, from here, your ruthless streak was, um, was, was shown in the last question that you very expertly planted in the audience. Um, <laughs> well, it's not true. <laughs> I know, I know. I'd, I'd like to leave you with just a very few thoughts. Um, Commissioner, you said that you, you felt that you are in Eurosceptic London, you came here and it was clear. I can tell you, if there was a Conservative majority government, it would have felt even more Eurosceptic. And the Liberal Democrat coalition seems to have um, unleashed the inner pro-European in David Cameron, which is marvellous. Um, but I, c I can genuinely tell you that um, you're actually dealing with a seriously constructive British government that is probably more engaged in European Union policymaking um, than even the previous Labour government was. And I think that's a tremendous opportunity for the Commission. And if you sort of leave here just with one thought, it could be that if the Commission is willing to make some progress on things that are important to the United Kingdom, like the working time directive, or oh, generally good, good. financial services regulation, if there's some movement there, even symbolic, then you might have progress on the rebate. You might have progress on supporting the uh, you know, um, Commission's own resources. Because one thing that's completely lacking in this country on the Commission's resources is that there are politicians that say, as a matter of principle, the Commission shouldn't be, um, or the European Union shouldn't be uh, getting any of its own resources. But it already does. In 1988, the European Union um, made up... Uh, 
89% of its budget from its own resources, 89%. That's now gone down to 15%. But, but if we're talking about principle, then um, it's, it's ridiculous to say, I, th I think we've got some things to think about, haven't we? Um, if we're talking about principle, it's ridiculous to say that because it's already there. And then on the second point, well, good luck with the rebate because if we abolish the UK rebate, um, the UK net contribution as a percentage of gross national income would be twice the size of um, uh, that of France and, and, and French diplomats have clearly been reduced in, in their struggle to think of a way of getting rid of this to coming to public lectures and saying how do we do this oh, this is impossible um, so <laughs> ladies and gentlemen I'd be very grateful if, if you could join me in uh, thanking the commissioner and wishing him good luck <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much Yes, if you could just remain seated. Um, obviously, I'd like to add my thanks on behalf of LSE. Uh, this is the main point of your trip to London. We are yeah. flattered, oh. delighted, and you've given us a tremendous hour and a quarter. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you could just very kindly wait until the Commissioner has left, and I think the Polish Ambassador will, will be accompanying him uh, and myself. And so you can just remain seated just for a moment, avoid the scrum. Thank you all. Please have a look out on the LSE website for future lectures in the um, European Institute uh, public uh, lecture series, Perspectives on Europe. Thank you all for coming.